Well, I hope you're having a wonderful morning this morning. You know, this morning we, uh, well first, let's, let's start with this. I've got a uh, special request this morning. I know some of them, some of us uh, often use our, our phones uh, to, to look at our Bible and to read the Bible during services, but this morning, can I ask you to turn your cell phones off? Is that too much to ask just for an hour? There's really nothing going to happen within the next hour that's not going to be the same when we leave church. And so I just want to remove the distraction. To me, uh, and as I uh, told my class this morning, and I've told the young people before, you know, there's nothing like sitting there reading the Bible and maybe the Holy Spirit starting to deal with us as we're reading God's Word, and then all of a sudden we get something that flashes across the screen that Mama's having lunch at a different place this morning, and, you know, the Spirit's quenched. So I just ask you this morning, just turn your cell phones off. Put them down, put them up where you can't see them, can't see the light flashing. And uh, uh, I promise you, I'll read from the King James Version this morning. You won't have to worry about that, but you can even go home and check me when you're done. You know, we skipped over this morning uh, our worship time, and uh, there's a, a pastor just north of us. He wrote a prayer that relates to the worship time. I, wait, I think that uh, best describes what an actual worship time when people bow their knees and humble themselves physically in a humbled position before the Lord. I'd like to read that this morning. Father, for a moment we pause to consider this time your people call worship. When you see many gather in your name each Sunday, do you call the angels together with great anticipation? Do you strain to hear the grateful voices give honor to the name that has redeemed them? Do our congregations meet your expectations or, or do you sit back and sigh in sad disappointment at the close of every service, having watched your people perform the ritual they've grown so accustomed to, singing those great hymns while thoughts drift to matters of such lesser importance, when those in the pew lose sight of the fact that this time of worship is not for our pleasure, but for yours. Have the singers and musicians given in to the latest styles in order to entertain a drifting audience, forgetting that the audience is actually a holy and changing God, with no need to be entertained, only honored and loved? He goes on in the prayer and he says, Father, Please show long-suffering to your people while we revive this time we call worship. May our auditoriums be transformed into sanctuaries of praise, pure expressions of honor that will draw you into our midst out of your desire and not out of your obligation. Help us to grow past simply attending church that we instead attend to worship. As we gather each Sunday to gain entrance into the courts of an awesome and holy God, may we bathe ourselves in humility, not only in our hearts, but visible humbling that results from proper thoughts of thee. Then the seeking sinner can leave our presence convinced there is a God because his people have willingly humbled themselves before him in true worship. I thought that was a great way to start the service this morning. We're sort of going to go that direction this morning. If you would quickly turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to move quickly uh, because, as you know, I've always got a lot to say. <laughs> Hopefully we'll allow the Lord to do the speaking this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, and then also... Uh, as I peruse my notes here, you might also put your fingers in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. I don't know if that was Blake's or mine. So we'll go over here and get a brand new one. I like Blake, but <laughs> not that much. In Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we read, in the year of Uzziah, in the year 
that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood seraphims. Each one had six wings and twain. He covered his face and twain, or with two he covered his feet, and twain he did fly. So picture that, that, that seraphim, that angel, six wings, two covering his feet, two covering his face, and two flying. In verse 3, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Isaiah talking here, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And in verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for the moments that we have already spent in praise and worship together. We pray now that our hearts may be open to receive your word and that the outflow will be the offering of our lives to honor you as we ponder the wonder of your love toward us through Christ Jesus. In his name, above all names, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to deal with just four phrases this morning from this passage. In our text, for context and comparison, though, we need to, uh, 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 in, in, for context and comparison in the present tense, let's look at what it says in verse 1 at the very beginning. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. And this is the reason I asked you to put your, your finger in 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 26. If you turn over there real quickly, in chapter 26, it gives us the details of Uzziah's reign as king. Uzziah took the throne, the throne of Judah, when he was only 16 years old. Who in here is 16 years old? <laughs> Judd put his hand up. Yeah, no, that ain't me. 16, raise your hands high. 16. We have one 16-year-old. Please stand up. He began as the ruler of Judah over armies at 16 years old. All right, thank you, Mr. Duke. He was a, a man whose life was eminently useful. And Uzziah was at 16 years old. Everything he needed, all the gifts that it took to rule the kingdom of Judah, he had. And he took his place. But he's a man who ended up in dire straits. But go with me there in verse 4. The Bible says about King Uzziah, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Man, how many of us want to do that? Amen. We all want to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. How many of us are doing it? Oh, we got quiet. Verse 5. Why did he do that which was right in the sight of the Lord? And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to what? To prosper. In verse 8, drop down there, and the Amorites gave gifts to Uzziah. Not only was he a good king, not only was he following God, but he was looking around at the country around him and the, the nations that were around him. One of those was the Amorites, not always nice to the, to the Hebrew children, but and the Amorites gave gifts to Uzziah, and his name spread abroad even to the entering of Egypt. He had popularity. He had respect. 
and he had power in the region in which he lived and in which he reigned. Now from verse 9 on, he was a very successful king. Not only did his own people look up to him, so did the surrounding nations and knew the wonder and the capabilities of this man. Now look quickly down in verse 15. And he made in Jerusalem engines. Now, Henry Ford is a few hundred years down the line, okay? These engines here are, are inventions, great inventions that people had never seen before. And he made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks, to shoot arrows and great stones withal, and his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped. And he was helped by the Lord. These were gifts that were given to him. Notice the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things as we go on from here. Till he was strong, all right, and his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Then you look in verse 16, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction for his transgressed against the Lord God and his pride muscle swelled and he went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar. Now understand, God had set up his altar in a very particular way with uh, meticulous instructions that they were to follow in the temple. And the king was not allowed to burn incense at the table of incense to a holy God. That was saved for the priest. It was not his place. I don't care who he was. I don't know how, care how great he was. I don't care how uh, good looking he was. I don't care how rich he was. He could not go into the house of God and do something to which God had not called him to do. It was wrong. It was not his place or position to be in the temple of the Lord to burn those incense. And he was in there simply because he had lost where everything had come from, which was from the Lord, and now he had, pride, he had a pride muscle that was flexing itself within him, uh, within his heart, within his mind, which caused him to say, hey, I can do anything I want because I'm great. I'm the man. And he went into the temple to burn incense. You know what? And I'll save this question for the teenagers right here. Nobody answered. Nobody shouted out. Raise your hand if you know the answer to this question. But what is perfect act of love. Mm. Any guesses? Dying for somebody? That's a good one, but that's not where I'm going. The perfect act of love. The teenagers are not the only ones with puzzled looks on their faces. Jesus Christ, he is love, but I'm talking about the perfect act of love. Where did that come from? Absolute. Obedience. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. Second time. Simon, lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. Be obedient. He turned around a third time. Notice the importance of that. Three times he asked. The same question. With the same answer. Simon, Peter, lovest thou me? Be obedient. Do my word and feed my sheep. Obedience, the perfect act of love. Uzziah knew that early on in his rule over his kingdom. But he lost that. You know why? He lost sight of who God really is. And you know what? If I was to ask the question this morning, 
So have some of us. It may be a periodic blindness, but there are times we ourselves, we don't have a vision of who God really is. With eyes on self, Uzziah was not obedient. His pride muscle told him he could do anything he wanted. And he didn't have to do what he didn't want to do. He would show God and those church people that he could do anything he wanted to do. When the king was confronted by the men of God, if you go on and read the remainder of this, he had an opportunity to humble himself and repent. But he got mad and pitched a fit, much like a child. This king, this king of Judah, acting like a baby. You know what? Oftentimes when conviction comes and the right words are spoken and they're a little offensive, we have within us, each and every one of us, that same reaction a childlike baby reaction, rather than to think if we may be wrong and the person that's given this, these instructions to us may be right, rather than giving that thought, what do we do? We get mad and we stomp off. Or we confront as Uzziah did. Or we just leave. Rather than thinking, hey, is this not the Holy Spirit of this person speaking through them to me? to make changes in my life, it's easier to get mad. It's easier to leave. It's easier not to, to face the problems that we have. But oftentimes, like Uzziah, we just get mad. And you know what? Mad, when you get mad, anger, uh, it, brings, it brings bitterness. Well, for Uzziah, it was just a little bit different. Uzziah... At that moment when he got mad, when he acted like a child, right here on his forehead, leprosy broke out. Read it. Leprosy broke out in his forehead. He lived the remainder of his life as king, as an outcast. When people saw him, they said, unclean. When he walked out in public, he had to say, unclean. Because sin had affected him in such a pitiful way, he could never be a part of society again because of pride. And pride is the lack of having humility in your life to view yourself in comparison to God. So this is the lesson for us all. No matter your history and upbringing, a lack of humility can bring you down, make you an outcast, unclean, and before you know it, pride will drive in bitterness, and bitterness always comes in in the place of what? Repentance, just like it did here for Uzziah. This backdrop was on Isaiah's mind. He lets us know over here in, uh, in chapter 6, he lets us know right up front but in the year that Uzziah died, this is what Isaiah is thinking about as he's writing this, as he's penning these words. He says, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about a, a nation that's in disarray, a nation that, that really doesn't have the leader that it once had, a, a nation that is crumbling and the leadership is crumbling and the world is crumbling around us. That's what's on his mind. And I declare to you today, we as believers need to take our eyes off everything that's going on in the world and repeat to ourselves, God is not taken by surprise. God is not taken by surprise. No matter what China's doing, no matter what's happening in the Ukraine, no matter what Russia's doing, no matter what's going on with the economy, no matter what's going on in the, in the markets around the world, God is still in control and the future lies within his hands as drawn out in his book. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. 
if you're a believer today. Actually, it's the, the world is not out of control. That's actually a misnomer. The, 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 the world is on a path, and the map is the Scriptures. The events that decide history are in the hand, and we need to recognize this, and we need to see it. The, 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 the future of the universe is in the hand of the Almighty God that created that universe. Nothing goes on without allow, He allowing it to happen. And that's included what goes on in your life. And He's always, He always, as He promises, makes a way of escape. And oftentimes, a lack of humility or that old pride muscle, that's what keeps us from making those changes that we need to make in our lives. But as I said, I want to deal with four phrases uh, in this, uh, uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 6. Let me get back over there. I want to deal with four phrases in this passage this morning that I chose as our context. And the first one is, in the year Uzziah died, there in verse 1, what do we see? I saw also the Lord. The king had fallen. The kingdom was in disarray, but God was in his place. And he was in his place how? He was in his place high and lifted up, the word tells us. High and lifted up. Kings and kingdoms may rise and fall. Nations may resist God's precepts and his judgment. But God is never taken by surprise and always prevails. And the word of the Lord always endures forever. Obedient Isaiah turns his eyes to the Lord in the need that confronted the nation of Judah here. And the greatest need of believers this morning is to get the sight, the sight of God as He really is. And it's given to us in a word description and in a word picture that we need to grab hold of this morning. Remember, it's a main thing. It's a plain thing. And we need to get rid of the idols of technology, of materialism. And as Christians, we know we need to put these things in a rightful place. But how do we do that? Well, this morning, last week, and tomorrow, we need to deliberately see the Lord. See the Lord. Not our Lord. And by that, don't misunderstand me. He is my Lord. But we don't need to see our Lord according to what we think God ought to be. God is what He told us He is. No matter what our preconceptions are, our preconceived ideas, our preferences, it doesn't matter. We sang the song this morning, and we're going to get to that phrase in a minute, holy, holy, holy. That is the right perception. That is the right perception. The greatest need of believers is to get rid, to get the sight of God and to see the Lord. We need sight of Christ. We need to see God. We need our eyes lifted beyond our own horizons. And we need them focused on the wonder of God's power. See, in the life in which we live, Man has placed himself in a position of all-powerful. Humanism's the word. That man, nobody's going to tell me what to do like Uzziah did. Nobody's going to tell me what to think. Nobody's going to tell me how I need to present myself. Nobody's going to tell me how to do that. And when they do, how do you react? Do you react, oh, Maybe is that right? Or I get mad, I get upset, I get hurt, I leave, I get mad, I confront. 
the right thing for Uzziah to do in his situation was to humble himself, show a little bit of penitence, get down on his knees and ask for forgiveness. And then turn around in repentance and go a different direction. But that pride muscle wouldn't let him do it. Wouldn't let him do it. It was easier to leave. It was easier to get mad until the leprosy set in. We need to see him as Isaiah did, seated on his throne, high and lifted up. What is sitting on a throne? What does that represent? You see somebody on a throne, and related to our, our time of worship that we have on, on Sunday mornings, when you see somebody on their throne, there's something that's required. He's on that throne, and I'm not. He's on that throne, I'm not. Pride says, I want to be. I want to be him, and that is exactly where we are in woke culture today. We want to be on that throne. We will not concede that it's his throne. He's the one that's supposed to be high and lifted up. He's the one that we're supposed to be looking at, looking up to, rather than those around us that have got all the initials beside their names and seem to be presented on all the news channels as so smart and intellectual. Granted, they are educated, but they are not smart. Why? Everything they have, do, say, and want you to do is outside the parentheses of this book. And that's where Uzziah decided to live. But Isaiah wanted more than that. <clears throat> he was high and lifted up. His domain was over all. And it is fact. But in the world today, in the culture today, everything out there, taught in your schools, taught in your universities, it's all fiction. And therein lies the failure of America. The failure, not the coming failure, we have failed. And until we recognize that as believers in America, it's not going to get any better. He has come to us in Christ, identified with us in the flesh, and now resides on the throne of all creation. We don't picture him on a cross, though, or in a tomb. He is alive and well and making intercession for each and every one of us that are born-again believers this morning. He's making intercession to a holy God for us and, and, and covering our sins with the precious blood from his own body. Man, we don't need to keep Jesus in a box and pull him out when we, when we need him. We need to see him as the great God that he is. He's great and powerful and not just your buddy. He's not just your buddy. He is high and lifted up. Somebody that we should, ah, because one day you will say, ah, but you know what? You'll be in that humble position. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that he's the Lord Jesus. This is the position in which you look at a holy God. Oh, I'm glad I was able to do that. <laughs> we very much, in today's time, we meet with them on horizontal terms. The same playing field, some would say. With him brought down to our level from where he really is, high and lifted up. It's not his place. He's not on the same plane with us. Our relationship has to be a vertical relationship. From up to down to us. You want to define humility? That's it right there. And it's living a life that stays there. 
Never bring anything down to our level. Now when we pray to Him and we honor Him, do we do it with fancy words that we had to go look up an addition? No. You need to speak to Him from your heart. But that heart has to be in the proper place. Your mind has to be in the proper place to speak with Him, to have a relationship, to see Him as He really is high and lifted up. The second phrase this morning, when we recognize His person, He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord. In the Hebrew, kadash, kadash, kadash. In the Greek, Hagias, Hagias, Hagias. Lord God Almighty, sacred, pure, blameless, the most holy one, the Lord God Almighty, high and lifted up. That's who he is. He's not some human being up there thinking about what he's going to do next. He knows what he's going to do next because he's already seen it, done it. It's in stone because he's God. We, we cannot humanize our Heavenly Father. We cannot humanize Jesus Christ past the 33 years that he spent here on earth. You can't humanize the Holy Spirit when it speaks to you and decide whether you want to listen or not. That Holy Spirit is, much as, is, is as much a holy God as God the Father is. The Holy Spirit's as much God as the Son is. And when He speaks to you through His Word, He'll never contradict His Word. You need to follow Quit letting that pride muscle prevent humility in your life that can give you the greatest life ever. Holy, holy, holy. Because he's holy, he doesn't like the things you look at on TV. Because he's holy, he doesn't like some of the literature that maybe you look at and read that affects you, that turns you against him, whether it be in a school setting, in a high school or a junior high or a college or just in your private library. He is disgusted as us as Christians in our actions and our reactions as we skip lolly doll on our way to heaven. Because we're living our life, not anybody else's. I'm going to do it my way, as Frank Sinatra said. When you look at God through the prism of Scripture, so often we should be totally ashamed of who and what we are. But that pride muscle, it's a strong one. We work out that pride muscle every day. We have people that assist us in working out that pride muscle and telling us how great we are. And we do the same for them. Oh, the things we justify. All the things we justify. Well, I do this because, well, I don't care what he says. I'm going to do this because you fill in the blanks. Our justification of our actions, if they are not with the intent that we serve a holy God, then you are wrong. That hurts, doesn't it? I hate to be told I'm wrong. I hate it. I hate for another person to tell me that I'm wrong. No smarter than what I am, it happens quite often. (laughs) 
He is the holy God. And when we see Him that way, it should drive constant change in our motivations, in our relationships, and in our lives. When you see God as He really is, high and lifted up, holy, 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 it should drive change in your life. It should drive change in your motivations. It should drive change in your relationships. Because, as I told my class this morning, 20 years from now, if I'm around, I'm going to look totally different. I'm going to look like Brother Kenyon. <laughs> Praise the Lord! Yeah! You know why? You know why? Because as a part of sin nature, I'm decaying. There's, I'm changing. Cells are dying right now. Man, there's, there's some gross stuff falling all over the floor in front of you guys right now because I'm dying. <laughs> I'm changing right before your very eyes. But you know what? They're falling off you too. And you're constantly changing. Life has changed. Our walk towards our Heavenly Father as we see Him should be in constant change always. Never be satisfied where you're at. Never be satisfied where you're at. Grow closer to a holy God. But you have to see Him as He is. He's not your buddy. And He will let you know that too. Because it's in His Word. That's the scripture according to Randy. And right here in, in 3B, I love that Isaiah includes a portion right here for us today. God in his foreknowledge, knowing that this woke culture was going to come and that Randy on this day, what's today's date? On the 14th of August was going to preach. I'm going to put this in there for him so he can, he can blast it out and he can... He can sound real cool when he says it. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. You, number one. But you know what? His creation as we walk outside, the grass I mowed yesterday is full of his glory. I can't invent grass. I can water it. I can throw chemicals on it, but I can't make it grow. The birth of a child, the creation of a child in a mother's womb, His glory's everywhere. If we look for it, we don't just simply believe, well, He said it, you know, He's my buddy, so... Uh, I guess that's his glory. No, you got to look at it. You got to see him for who he really is. You got to see him high and lifted up. That's our problem. We're too complacent. We're happy where we're at. Let me just say this too. People upset me to think that what's going on in this world right now, COVID. What's going on in this world right now, monkeypox, is something that's created over in a Chinese laboratory. It's not. It's God's judgment. And you better understand that. And you know what? It's just starting. The worst is yet to come. This world's going to see things that it's never seen before. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt those that we love. But it's coming. It's coming. We might be gone before it all gets here. But don't put solace in that. That first three and a half years is going to be good. And it can be good because the years before that was so bad. Think about that. 
First three and a half years of the tribulation after Christ takes us out of here, the Bible says that as far as the world's concerned, it's good with a one world ruler, one world religion. Everything's going fine. Economy's clipping along pretty good. But you know what? We don't have anything to vector that against, to compare it to. We don't know how bad it's going to get before Christ comes and takes his own. And you better remember that. Things are not so bad right now that God can't make them worse. Because Satan ain't making none of this. God's allowing it. He's in control. Remember, he's high and lifted up. He's holy, holy, holy. And it just, it, it behooves me. It just, it just drives me mad that this hasn't come in and been spoken from the pulpits of the churches on television and churches everywhere else that, hey, this may be God's judgment on us finally here because we're such a wretched generation. And we are. Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed because of little sins. And America's in the midst of not little sins. They're in some of the biggest ones. Read Romans chapter 1. We're not only violating God's rules, mankind is violating nature's rules. The glory of creation in six days, the entire universe, is an awesome thing. And in schools today and in universities all over America, they're telling you it's a myth. Nobody created the earth in six days. Man wasn't created in a day. Man, woman wasn't created from the rib of a man. Animals were not on an ark. They weren't saved from a cataclysmic uh, uh, total earth flood. That's what they're telling you. That's what they're telling your kids. And you know what? You're letting them. You're paying them to do it. You're writing that, that what, what, what's, what's the little tax form you get on with your paycheck? What's it called? I'm thinking 1099, but that's not it. W-2. There you go. Take a look at your W-2. When you look at that W-2, I'm paying teachers, I'm paying professors to go out there and tell my kids a lie, that the Bible is wrong, that God is not who he is. That's what that W-2 tells you. You write that tax check at the end of the year. You need to recognize what that's doing. That's teaching your kids not to believe God's word. That's putting blinders on them so they can't even understand what a holy God looks like. What high and lifted up means. That's what they're teaching your kids. I know it's pain to hear that all the time. I know it pains, pains you to hear that. But you know what? Nobody's saying it. And it needs to be said because kids are leaving churches by the droves. Kids have been in church all their life. Good churches. Good churches. They're going down here where some guy will tell them or some woman will tell them what great human beings they are. That there's nothing wrong with the way that they're living their life. Why are they doing that? Because your schools have taught them that. It just infuriates me. But I digress. Perhaps the greatest evidence that someone has trusted God for who he really is is a life that's gripped in humility that sees themselves as they really are compared to a holy God. The reality is we are poor lost sinners saved by grace. Poor lost sinners saved by grace. I hope you are. And I hope it's real. Because I'll probably bring it out again in my next point. But you cannot see God for who he really is if you're not a born-again believer of Jesus Christ. 
if you haven't accepted him as your personal Savior, you're doomed. You're doomed. So I move on. Third phrase. Verse 7. Touch thy lips. Now you're going to have to hang with me here because this gets a little complicated. It's so complicated, maybe I don't even know how to explain it. Uh, Einstein said, if you can't explain it to a fourth grader, you probably don't understand it yourself. So let me get it down to my level as a fourth grader. First, Isaiah recognized that he had a need. If you look a little further up, what does he say? Woe is me. I'm a man with unclean lips. I live in a people of unclean lips. You know what he's saying? Man, I have sin. I was born of Adam. I'm a sinful man. I don't deserve to be here. Woe is me, for I am undone. Then the seraphim, and pay close attention to this. What does the seraphim do? The seraphim comes over, and he takes a live coal. Now, if you got the wrong translation, your Bible says a glowing coal or a hot coal. The King James translated here is a live coal. Something that is living. Something that is, is alive and well. To me, I say to me, I shouldn't say that. I tell kids in my class not to say that the young adults in my class, not to say, this is what I believe. You should never say that. The term is, this is what God's word says. That's the term. But here, a live coal. Jesus Christ is very much alive and well today and sitting at the right hand of God. He, too, as the Father and as the Spirit, is high and lifted up. But he's alive. When he went to the cross, he was alive. He felt the nails. He felt as they plunged that cross into that hole. Or if they did it, as some say, as they pulled him up on the upright and secured the upright, he felt every bit of it because he was alive. And he felt it for you. And just as this coal is alive, your Christ is alive. Isaiah here is, is looking for something to take the sin out of his eyes that blinds him from seeing everything that God has allowed him to see. And he is. He's purged here by a live coal. The seraphim took a live coal from the altar. And what is the altar? The altar is a place of sacrifice. Once again, pointing us to who? Pointing us to Jesus Christ. He took a live coal, took something alive off the altar and laid it on Isaiah's lips. And we have what we call an altar here. And it is. I mean, people come down here and they sacrifice the old self that doesn't allow them to see Christ or God high and lifted up. But the place of sacrifice, that is the only place that you can be cleansed just as Isaiah was cleansed. Only at the cross. There's no other way. And the Bible says his iniquity was taken away. So is mine. My iniquity is taken away because I went to that altar of sacrifice. Hopefully, your iniquity is taken away as well because you came to that altar of sacrifice. But once again, if not, if you have not been there, don't expect to see what I'm talking about this morning. A holy God, holy, 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 high and lifted up and on His throne. Something that can motivate me, that reminds me of just exactly who I serve. Have you been touched with the life 
from the altar of sacrifice. The cross was a sacrifice for all sin, for all mankind's debt was paid in full. Have you accepted Christ in His place as Lord? Yeah, that's the big question. If you have not been saved, you will never see God for who He really is until it's too late. You know, <clears throat> one of these days, I said, you know, we're all going to be humbled. There's two judgments, folks. There's two. When Jesus Christ comes back, the first time doesn't come to the earth and there are those that go to meet him. Who goes to meet him? Come on now. Those that are born again, those who believe, the church, the true church. And it won't be just Baptists either. It won't be. In fact, there's going to be a lot of you Baptists left behind because you don't see God for who he really is. And I know for some that's, that's hard. But you know what? God's word is right and you're wrong. <laughs> not just one? Not, not one? <laughs> Amen! <laughs> we hate to be told we're wrong. I know it. I do. I hate it. But in that, that first group that goes for the next seven years, what's going to happen to those? Those of the church, those that are born again. Come on. Some of y'all have been in FBI. I know you know the answer. Judgment seat of Christ. For all you saved people out there, you're going to answer for the works done in the flesh. It's coming. It's coming. You better be ready. Imagine standing before God and saying, well, you never saw me for who I really was. You got your little ticket to heaven. And then you just skipped along doing whatever you wanted to do. Being who you wanted to be. Never once thinking about the life that I had for you that would have been great. That would have dropped crowns in front of you that you could cast at my throne. All but then at the end of that seven years. There's a time that comes. That was the judgment seat of Christ. Then there's one that's called the great white throne judgment. That's where all of you that never accept Jesus Christ, you're going to see him for who he really is. And you're going to bow your knees no matter how much arthritis is in them. You're going to bow your knees. And you are going to call him holy, holy, holy when you see him as he really is, before he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Fourth phrase. I haven't even looked at the clock. Am I good? Oh. Fourth phrase. Down at the bottom, verse 8. This is one that uh, missionaries, when they come, they like to read to us, and rightfully so. I'm not begrudging them for that. But you know what? It ain't a missionary verse. It's an everyday born-again believer walking down the street verse. Just put away that pride muscle. Taking on a little bit of humility, clothe themselves in humility. When he says, here am I. This is Isaiah talking here. He's seen all this. He's seen the seraphim. He's seen him high and lifted up. He's seen the, the angels call him or the seraphim call him holy, holy, holy. I'm ready, Lord. I've seen you as you really are. High and lifted up. Holy. And here am I, Lord. Send me. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I've seen him. Problem is, you don't want to go because you haven't seen him. And you may be born again. You may be as saved as me. You may be a child of the king. But yet you haven't got a vision of a, a holy God in such a way that you're, you're just totally constrained by it and want to say, Here am I, Lord, send me. 
and you'll be complacent and spend the rest of your life in a pew doing nothing when there's somebody out there that only you can reach. That's sad, isn't it? That's sad, isn't it? You've got a story to tell. You've got a testimony. I've been teaching this in my class. You have a testimony that will reach somebody that nobody else can. I told him today, I said, when you're leading somebody to the Lord, you don't walk up to Joel and he's unsaved and you know it and say, Joel, now you're going to hell. You're going to die and you need to get saved. I guarantee you in this culture, people don't want to be told that they're sinners, that they're dirty, rotten scoundrels. But you know what? They'll listen to somebody and sit down. Let me tell you what happened to me. When I was seven years old, Joel, preacher preached the message. I couldn't tell you what he told me. I can't tell you what he preached about. Joel, that day, something inside me was burdening me, pulling me towards, towards God. And I'm going to blame the Holy Spirit. And that day I went forward and Mary Nightman dealt with me down at the altar. I got saved, man. It was so cool, Joe. I want you to experience the same thing. I've got a story to tell. You know what? So do you. You've got a story that there's somebody out there in the mass of humanity outside those walls that they only listen to you. It may be a family member. It may just be a waitress or a waiter a hostess at a restaurant, but you can reach them. But you haven't recognized God and you haven't seen Him. You need to change your perspective today. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> no one will ever say, here am I, send me until you see the Lord for who He really is. Either you are lost as a goose or your God is way too small. You've put Him in a box. And He doesn't have you. The Bible says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Leave your pride behind. And at that point, it will be a new beginning because at the point of reconciliation with God, whether you're needing salvation or you need to rededicate your life, we don't hear that word much anymore, rededication. There's a lot of Christians that need to rededicate their life. At that point of reconciliation, the greatest thing for us here on this earth is all that past is cast as far as the east is from the west. That means it's gone forever. Heavenly Father, Lord, I come to you now, Lord, and I thank you for the love that you've shown us, Lord. And there are people that are contemplating what they've heard this morning. Just like that old king bowing up their spirit and don't want to concede and don't want to reconcile with you. And Lord, I just ask that you do a work in their hearts, Lord. Reveal yourself unto them. Then there are those that have answered the call. They're ready to be sent, Lord. Strengthen them, Lord. Show them all that you can do through them. Show your strength, Lord, to them in such a way, Lord, that their confidence continues to grow, Lord, as they're ever-changing. Then, Lord, there's a third person here this morning. They have no idea who you are. They don't understand the concept that I brought out this morning, Lord, but they know they need something. Help them, Lord, to find somebody, whether it's calling the church, Lord, whether it's talking to, to one of the men of this church or the, one of the women of this church, Lord, to, to find out what being saved really is, Lord. Put in their heart a fire, Lord, that won't let them stop until they find out, Lord, so that they can see you high and lifted up, holy, holy, holy.
In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. So Miss Pat continues to play or starts to play.